Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Teibel, and I'm joining you all from Jeshov, Poland, where I'm visiting my husband, who's here working on humanitarian relief efforts. And as always, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Ali Bernison. Hey, everyone. I'm Ali, and I am with Peace Catalyst in Los Angeles, California. Although currently I'm in Washington state because it is a long weekend. Um, So if you guys enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, rate and review us on Apple or wherever you listen because it helps others find us. So it boosts our visibility and encourages others to give us a listen. So thank you guys so much for doing that. This week we are chatting with Andrew Larson, who's a longtime friend of Peace Catalyst and a devoted peacemaker. Andrew has worked as a consultant to churches and nonprofit groups seeking to understand the other, particularly Muslims. He empowers peacemaking initiatives through photography, building relationships, and growing a network among Muslim, Christian, and advocacy groups to build bridges between divergent communities. Working with Serve Globally of the Covenant Church, as well as Peace Catalyst International, and as an ordained minister, Andy has hosted Peace Feasts, multi-faith dialogue, and advocacy for the vulnerable in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He is also part of the Sila community, which is committed to the contemplative life, taking time to pause on purpose, to nurture the reflective life with Jesus in listening prayer, solitude, and other disciplines to cultivate the strength and perspective necessary to sustain a life of outward service to others. So we had such a, such a great conversation with Andy um, and I, yeah, I'm so excited for you guys to hear more about his trip to Iraq and, um, yeah, his, his conversations with prominent Muslim leaders. Um, so there's, there's a lot to, to get into in this episode. Yeah. I'm can't wait for you all to hear it as well. And I really appreciate Andy's, um, just journey of, you know, going along to places that are uncomfortable or foreign or, distant in order to, um, yeah, to let himself be stretched and grown and also bring that back home with him too. So it's really cool to hear his, his, um, some of his lessons in peacemaking. And I think, um, yeah, just want to encourage all of us to listen with open hearts and open minds and, um, can't wait to get into this episode. Um, before we do, we just have a quick peace quote to share. Um, This is a quote by author Rebecca Solnitz. It says, Pilgrimage is premised on the idea that the sacred is not entirely immaterial, but that there is a geography of spiritual power. Pilgrimage walks a delicate line between the spiritual and the material and its emphasis on the story and its settings through the search, though the search is for spirituality. It is pursued in terms of the most material details. Or perhaps it reconciles the spiritual and the material. For to go on pilgrimage is to make the body and its actions express the desires and beliefs of the soul. Pilgrimage unites belief with action, thinking with doing. And it makes sense that this harmony is achieved when the sacred has material presence and location. Thank you so much, um, Andy, for joining us today on the podcast. 
we're so excited to hear from you and your story um, and your your journey of peacemaking. Um, wondering if you'd mind just sharing a little bit about yourself and your journey of getting to where you are today as a peacemaker, as a follower of Jesus, and as a spiritual leader, among many other things. Yeah, sure. Um, just by way of introduction, um, I'm, I'm an ordained minister. I serve with uh, our denomination um, in the MENA region, which is Middle East, North Africa, but um, I'm also kind of in a, um, a hybrid um, position where I'm based in the U.S. and do a lot of engagement with, um, I prefer to call a multi-faith principally Christian Muslim um, sphere. So um, we call it peacemaking. Uh, I'm, I'm very much familiar with the PCI um, kind of approach to this work and um, love it, have collaborated with PCI over the years, um, but also do a lot of work in Israel, Palestine. And then I just came back um, just a few weeks ago from a trip to to Iraq, where I visited um, many of the important shrines. And I'm, I think we'll talk about that later. Um, shrines uh, that are important to the Shia tradition, but also a lot of Sunnis are very keen and interested in some of the, the places we went. Um, so just a lot came out of that. It was very hot. It was 120 degrees um, several days, and I'm from the Northwest, so it was um, a little overwhelming. Um, maybe just another quick quick piece about how I came into this. Um, I think that's part of your question. I was, um, I was serving in a church. I was a pastor of a church um, when 9-11 occurred. And I felt this manifestation within our church um, of Islamophobia, which is just an, um, kind of a, an extreme um, manufactured in some ways fear, fear of, of Muslims uh, and of Islam in general. Um, sometimes it showed up in a softer version, you know, it kind of creeped into people's attitudes in kind of their, their heart fears about oh, what's going to happen if Muslims come into our neighborhood. But sometimes that was, um, I found a more edgy, definitely angry version of this fear towards Muslims. So I just felt um, responsible to, kind of as a spiritual leader, pastor in that community to begin walking in that, but I, I knew very little. Um, you know, I read, read the news and I'm, I'm a reader, so I knew some stuff. So I just started visiting mosques um, in our area. Um, but interestingly, I, I think I showed up the first time at a mosque on a Wednesday um, and only the caretaker was there. So he told me to come back on a Friday, um, you know, when they gather for prayer. That's their, their big day. Uh, middle of the day, and I could meet the imam. So I just started to do that. I came into that, wanted to just be a good neighbor to begin with as a pastor. I would say, you know, I'm here to learn. And then that just began to um, grow. There was a sense of, um, I was leaning into that. I felt this reciprocal need 
from Muslims in our community to, to um, lean into who I was and the the general community, but also the church because they they'd heard much much about kind of ideas that were expressed by some of the leading evangelical voices, especially um, that were kind of negative. So that grew, um, began to visit the mosques regularly, built friendships with imams, and then began to take groups from our church to the mosque and um, just begin to build some of those relationships so that we would respond not out of fear. That's kind of how he emerged. And I've been doing that now since about 2002 or three. Um, so you, you touched on this a bit, but, um, so you recently returned from Iraq and I'm very interested. This is my first time meeting you, speaking with mm-hmm. you. So, um, I, and I'm sure the audience is very interested to hear a bit about that, how long you were there, um, what the purpose of your visit was, um, what, yeah, what you gleaned, what you're bringing back with you. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've had a burden, um, since about 2003 for the country of Iraq. And one of the mosques that I visit is the Shia community. So I, I knew generally that, um, that places in, in, in Iraq were important to the Shia community, but um, I also knew that Iran was part of that in terms of where um, the leaders would go train or kind of who they follow in terms of um, their they're thinking about how they should practice their faith in today's world. So definitely interested, but um, burdened by um, how the U.S. Um, involvement with the country of Iraq um, leaned in a certain direction. And 2003 was you know, what they called the shock and awe campaign in Baghdad to remove Saddam Hussein. A lot of the stuff is being said of weapons of mass destruction, um, which we, I, I had a suspicion at the time that the, that it, it was an incredible um, posture. But anyway, just trying to um, work through all of that back in the early years when I was doing this um, just felt burdened. Uh, just this, you know, this deep, deep sense of um, unease in my heart about what was happening in the country and and a lot of the collateral damage. So what often happens in international relations is, you know, powers, the world leaders do stuff and we don't count. We don't count the, um, you know, they use the word uh, collateral damage. It's just initially when the, there was deaths in, in what we were doing there, we would count the deaths of American soldiers, but um, not the Iraqis who who were also victims of what was happening. That's a long <laughs> introduction. I um, I went to the mosque here locally a couple of years ago during Ashra. Ashra is the Arabic word for ten, and they do um, according to the lunar calendar every year. Um, they celebrate, or re- it'd probably be better to say, memorial um, service on the martyrdom of Hussein. Hussein was the grandson of the prophet. He was the one that many thought should be their leader. Um, at different times in the early, in the first fifty years of, of after the prophet's death, and 
the, the story of Islam. But he was martyred in um, six, 680 in uh, the desert um, of Karbala, which is present-day Karbala in Iraq. So the, the first time I went to that, I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, there was a ceremony, and then what they do is they um, – it's, it's really kind of um, – hard for the Western person to understand what's going on. But they're, they're in this deep lament over the martyrdom of Hussein. They beat their chest. So I was in the prayer room and uh, with over a hundred um, other, uh, other worshipers who were praying and they're just beating their chests in unison and wailing and crying and remembering and telling some of the story, gory details of the martyrdom of Hussein. So it, it struck me as very, very, um, I, I just didn't know what to make of it initially. And, um, but began to learn and understand more the importance of lament and just the story of trying to answer the question in the entire world of Islam was, um, they were trying to figure out who it was should, who should lead them after the death of Muhammad. And there was, there was um, disagreement on that. Okay, so fast forward, that was several years ago, and this opportunity came up. I've been wanting to go to Iraq for some time, but um, was um, it was recommended that I not go just because of security issues and being American, obviously, all of those issues. But this tour came up. A friend told me about it. Actually, the imam in this particular community connected me with um, a group that was going. So I went during... Um, during the Ashra ceremony, when they celebrate that in the country of Iraq. And there were um, estimates of 5 million people in the city of Karbala. And I was, um, I didn't see any other white men <laughs> during, during this event. So it was a combination mosh pit going into the shrine in Karbala, where the, so the shrine is where, um, you know, um, Hussein's, um, uh, mausoleum or you know his his grave is is stationed and they built this um incredible mosque slash sh um, shrine over over that burial place and pilgrims go there every year during ashra to commemorate to remember to mourn the death the death of hussein so some of my sunni friends watching all of this were a little uneasy with it because there's there's huge disagreement um but I'm in this as a kind of as a Jesus follower and what I call equal opportunity peacemaker. So that's kind of my word to my Sunni friends. But we were there. I was there for um, almost two weeks um, visiting shrines with a group of um, Shia pilgrims. Um, but they were mixed. They were from many places uh, around the world. And the, the leader of our, our tour was, um, he's a... Um, a scholar, professor of Islam, and um, yeah, we were we were in the thick of it for that whole time. Um, there's there's other things that happened, but I can I can talk about some of those pieces after there's more questions. Yeah, I'm curious. So I know that you had met with a particular Shia leader. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that meeting was like? Yeah, sure. Um, 
So it was wild. There was a lot of theater, and I'll try to tell some of that, but not um, take too much time because um, I know you want to get to the substance. But <clears throat> so Sistani um, in the Muslim world is uh, the leading um, cleric. He's he's the most important leader, thought person, spiritual um, guide for the whole Shia world, both within Iraq, but um, even outside of that. And some of my Sunni friends also respect him for who he is, for how he's lived his life. He lives in the city of Najaf, which is kind of the, has become the center um, in, in, in many ways, important ways, kind of like the, would be maybe the, um, the Vatican for, at least for Shia Islam, but also um, others find him um, just important. He's 92 years old, so he's been around for a while. He's one of the clerics with a turban. Um, and it's important to, to understand that um, he has created some, um, some space that is different than the, the Iranian version of, of how the clerics carry themselves in the world, how they influence politics in general. And the Iraqi model is actually... Um, probably a little more careful about how they um, position position themselves within that that um, constellation of, of influence and of government. Um, he, he tries to be neutral, would be my perspective. And um, But he also has been very, very keen on, especially in the early years when we were involved as a country, the U.S., of not allowing uh, the encroachment of... Um, foreign powers to influence and shape what happens. Um, but not as radical and not as um, angry um, towards uh, the, West, the Western, Western presence. Although, of course, during you know, what we did there was, um, was very difficult. Um, and number two influence person in, um, in Iraq is, would be considered more of a radical. Um, firebrand, but he's he's been influenced in my perspective more and more by Sistani. So that would be Muqtada al-Sadr. So anyway, um, this was, we were teased with the possibility of being able to see Sistani, but didn't know it was going to happen. So I kind of went, we're on spiritual pilgrimage visiting these these shrines, and then they had to do some finagling, but we got we got a day or, or morning with Sistani. So here's here's what's happening. We go up to his. Uh, it's a it's a humble house. I think he even rents it in the in the city of Najaf, maybe um, half a kilometer from um, the shrine to Ali. And um, we're on the street, kind of like the curb. There's markets and shops, and he um, said so we had to take everything. Um, of value and potential security risk off of our person. So belts off, shoes off. I had to take my wedding ring off. Could not even have a business card from the hotel where we were staying in my pocket. None of that. So we we took all those items off and then we're standing there kind of waiting for our turn to go in. But there's there's crowds of people because people, they know this is Sistani's house and people want to get in to, to see him or to get a, a blessing some something. Um, and then our tour guide, a young docent guy, he's about 30 years old, goes, Oh, look, look, 
and he's pointing down the street to uh, there goes Muqtada al Sadr. You know, the, this guy, he's got this black turban, he's walking with this, um, he's got a gait. Have you ever seen a video or news um, clip of um, Sadr, Muqtada al Sadr? He just looks like a man on a mission. He looks a little angry, maybe, to the <laughs> typical Western eyes. And he was walking in just right past us. But he had an entourage of uh, probably 10 security guys around him because uh, his life is threatened. Um, his father, who was an important Ayatollah, was assassinated during the Saddam years. So there's just all kinds of dynamics at play. But we're standing there, and there he is. He's walking into Sistani's house. And apparently he was having a, a meeting with Sistani before we, we got in. But there we are. And while we're waiting, we look, and there's this car, this, this important car that's backing up on the curb, and his chauffeur is there, and it's surrounded by um, more security guys. Uh, one, of the, one of our tour guys took a picture, and they just got furious. They're, you know, it's just security, high-tense security. So there were three rows of security people on the curb between us and the walkway into Sistani's house. And then behind, so those, those people were um, Muqtada's security detail. And behind that, there was another three pros of Sistani's security detail. And I'd never experienced anything quite that tense. I've been in a lot of places in the world, but nothing quite, quite that, that crazy. But it came time, they opened up. It was like the parting of the Red Sea. <laughs> we were able to walk in. But people from the street were just pushing in. They wanted to get in. We got through. Um, we got in then to, there was a like an airport security screener we had to walk through. They frisked us two or three times, two or three different checkpoints. Just the process to get into Sistani's house. Um, but we got in. They gave, served us coffee in a side room. And then we they were finally filed us into to have a session with Sistani. And so it was our group, only our group, about 20 of us. Um, Sistani's staff, the managers, um, a lot of men in suits, a few with turbans, and just this drama. But there is Sistani sitting on the bench, the corner bench, the same place where the Pope sat with him um, uh, last year, 21, I think it was November. <clears throat> and he's 92. And we were all struck almost immediately. He just starts sharing from his heart. Um, he was definitely a spiritual leader. He had this, he had this um, aura um, that was just humble. Uh, he talked about praying for us as a group, about praying for um, situations and people in the world. And just this, this wisdom and hard-earned um, spiritual insight just was pouring out. One of the guys in our group who um, has become a friend, Iqbal, um, who, by the way, his his mom is Shia and his father is Sunni. So, um, you know, th there's such a variety of Muslims in the world and, and family situations. We, we, we shouldn't ever um, put them in one bucket ever. That's just, you can't, you can't do that. But he asked, said, um, what what are the most important things um, from your long life of, you know, just leading the, you know, the community um, 
that she could share with us, more, most important life, life lessons. There was a quiet, pregnant moment. We're all just kind of wondering, what is this man going to share with us? Um, so he, he, he said three things. Number one, it says, be good to all people as they're your brothers. Um, and he gave a little footnote to that that deeply impacted me. He said, even to those who don't agree with you, be, be kind and be good to all people. That was the first one. And then he said, help those you encounter as much um, and in whatever capacity you can. So he said, be in the community, be um, not just in your own clubs, be in the place where you can help and support those in your community. And then uh, lastly, he said, cultivate a good character. That was a rough translation of kind of the ethical, the akhlak, akhlak, something, I'm probably mispronouncing the Arabic. Um, so good ethics and how you interact with people. Um, so that was, that was just like, wow. Um, they were managing, his staff was managing his time. Of course, he's, he's old, he tires, but um, that was the end of our session. They ushered us out. Um, our, our tour leader looked at me and he goes, wow, that sounded a lot like Jesus to me. <laughs> and our tour leader does some interfaith work in, in Toronto. So he's conversant in kind of my world. And I was with this group as a Christian. I, they, they all called me the reverend. Um, it was kind of fun. They had lots of questions about who I am and what's the difference between a priest and a pastor and a lot, a lot of conversations through, through our time together. But when we were filing out, the staff, they picked me out of the group and they, they held me. And I wasn't sure what was going on. I wasn't um, afraid because, you know, it just felt hospitable, but I was picked out of the group. And he said, wait here, wait here. Um, then the tour guide leader who, who could help kind of interpret and translate some of the stuff that was being said came over to me and um, he helped kind of officiate this. The, the staff wanted to know who I was, why I was there, what I was doing. But it wasn't, you know, like a, a series of uh, intimidating questions. They were just curious. And so we said, you know, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a, I'm a pastor, minister. I'm here uh, to learn and to pay respect to your leaders, to understand more. And immediately the guy reached out and grabbed my arm. And there's this thing they do, in, um, at least in Iraq, but also in Palestine, they put the hand to their own chest. And it's like this, this, this greeting of warmth, um, affection, and kind of leaning in. And um, I, I was just uh, struck by their hospitality and their warmth. And um, they were impacted that I was there. So I said, wait a minute, just before you leave. He went um, in a door, came out and gave me, um, gave me a ring. They gave me a gift. So I have a ring now that uh, only fits on my pinky finger. I have to resize it. But it's a ring from, from Sistani because of my visit there as a, a Christian. That is so, um, yeah, it's just so cool to hear about your experience um, and to just imagine what that must have felt like being in the room. And probably he had such a captive audience. I can only imagine. Um, so there was, was there any time for 
dialogue then or question and answer or um, was it, yeah, I'm just curious about the feel or, or was it kind of just Sistani sharing and, and the yeah. crowd kind of listening and. Um, a little of Q&A, but not a lot. It was more um, initially the members in our group were asking for prayers. So it was like, um, and there is this sense that he's a very holy man. He's close to God um, and he has some influence, you know, with God. So a number of people in our group were asking for prayers, special intercessions. And this is framed in the, the whole um pilgrimage, the um, Ziyarah, zira, which is kind of what they term this period. So they're there uh, with a deep spiritual you know, purpose for their journey. So they were connecting with the holiest in their tradition and asking, you know, for his, for his, um, his prayers. But the, the, that one question did come and he was, he spent some time with that. I wanted to talk at some point, but I wasn't sure what to say. I didn't want to make, you know, embarrass myself or <laughs> my kids. But it struck me that even as, um, you know, maybe for your listeners, that um, we don't always know what we're doing. We just don't. Or what to say. But I was deeply struck by the ministry of presence and showing up that communicates so much. Um, it communicates to our friends that we respect their journey, that we want to be with them um, and learn from them because you need to know and understand that, you know, they experience the, the, the back end of Islamophobia, this um, car- negative caricatures and things that are said that are just really horrible. And so, for a white man, an American white male to show up in that space, just, I don't even have to say anything. It just says so much. Um, but I thought a lot afterwards, like, what would I have said if I actually had the courage to say something? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, which, yeah, which totally makes sense that it was it was more of a time to absorb and listen um, mm. and be present. I really like how, how you said um, just the, the ministry of presence is yeah, quite profound. I, yeah. Showing up um, mm. and making space for others to share their experiences, especially such a prominent leader. Um, yeah. So I'm curious as you have had time and space to reflect what, what has come up for you, you know, maybe even, um, well, from your experience in Iraq, but then also with, with what was shared, um, what Sistani shared, is there anything mm-hmm. that you've come to reflect on personally in your own faith and walk with um, God or, you know, anything that you're, that you've, that you've taken with you or that's really stood out to you? Yeah. I think um, a number of things are, and some of this is um, stuff I've been doing for a while, but was just really um, kind of underlying with, with greater clarity, perhaps, and a deeper conviction because of this trip. Um, number one is showing up. Um, also, when there's this concept that's called holy envy, and uh, there's even a great book 
by that title, um, Finding God in the Faith of Others. And um, there's, there's this, um, the deeper you go, the greater connections I'm finding with my Muslim friends. Um, they have a relationship with God. It's very clear. Um, people like our tour leader and then also Sistani, who are, are well-educated, have some idea of who Jesus is. Um, obviously, that theologically, we disagree on that. But um, if you come into that presence in a way of listening and wanting to learn, being teachable, those conversations have always been um, ironic, really positive for me. Um, and the more I listen, the more questions then come up um, to me. So questions like when I'm just with the group, they want to know, so what does a pastor do? <laughs> uh, and, you know, the question of who Jesus is um, actually comes up um, in our understanding and being able to tell some, you know, gospel stories is, is always welcome. It's not something that's resisted. Obviously, there's certain ideas that they have of Christianity that um, I'm able to correct at a certain point. But one of the principles in this concept of holy envy is um, when trying to understand another religion, it's important that we ask the adherents, the people who practice that religion and not their enemies. So um, too many times I hear people kind of spouting off, you know, this is what Muslims believe and they're so-called experts. And sometimes they may speak Arabic, um, but they don't, they don't really know Muslims. They're, they're reading it from often a, uh, a really negative view. Um, so that that's a big big part. And um, a second concept is don't compare your best with their worst. So um, I really try to you know talk about more of a Sistani as opposed to the um, Ayatollah Khomeini in in, a, in Iran who's belligerent and you know spews out hate speech towards Americans. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I, I leave room for respecting what, what they bring into my life. Um, one of the big things that comes to me all the time is um, Muslims have taught me that uh, right faith, correct faith must be followed by right behavior. So um, sometimes we, we try as Christians to get our, our doctrine, our viewpoints all, all squared up really well. Um, but we fail many times in translating that into our behavior and our ethics. In Muslims, uh, that's that's more integrated. So that's clearly a, a thing that um, has impacted me. I've been invited to preach quite a bit, and I often try to bring an experience into that. So so people aren't just sitting listening to me because that can get boring but to somehow create a, a link or a bridge to their local Muslim neighbors. Um, so one of the big things PCI does that I picked up early was peace feast. We'll go to a, um, a restaurant or a place of eating that's either owned by a family um, from the Muslim world. We, I go ahead of time. I sit down. I, I meet the either the manager or the owner of the restaurant. Often it's a family-owned place. And um, 
I ask him a few questions, you know, where is he from, how he got here, what his story is. Um, and then after I build that initial uh, bridge, I will bring a group from my church and then we call it a peace feed. So, and I'll tell the, the owner, the manager, we're coming. It's a group from our church. We want to sit down and eat and enjoy your food. Um, and that again is just seeing them. You know, their, their food is, is often, um, it's, it's part of their culture and part of their pride. Um, and you honor them, you honor them by eating their food. So the hospitality is so important, but then I'll invite when I'm there with my Christian group, I'll invite, uh, the person that I met to come and sit with us at some point. And I'll kind of do a little impromptu interview, ask them some questions. And then open it up for people at the table to ask questions. It's just those kinds of things of building, building connections. And then those people, they know the place, they know the owner, they can come back anytime. And I encourage them to come and you know, patronize the restaurant and just become friends, just be in the community, get to know them. Um, sometimes we, we, um, we build a program around an event, an incident, something that's happened, and we, we reach out. But um, we need to do more grassroots stuff just to have those relationships ready-made. So if something happens, we can call up our friend and go be with them, stand with them, um, advocate for our Muslim um, friends in the community. Um, but I also like to take uh, groups from churches to the mosque. So I, I do that a, a lot. And um, usually the imam will give us some time after the time of prayer on Friday, lots of questions and answers. And um, part of it is, is um, too often what we do in the, in the churches, we, we flip what um, John says in 1 John, um, that perfect fear casts out love. And um, we need to disciple people in perfect love, cast out fear. So just building those kinds of connections is really, really vital and important. Um, I, I will just say one more thing that this trip, my trip to Iraq, helps me understand um, a lot more some of the Sunni-Shia tensions that are pretty, pretty raw still in lots of places in the world. So it helps me understand that, oh, the conflict in, in, in Yemen, that's a Sunni-Shia thing. Some of the conflicts in Lebanon, there's a layer of the Sunni-Shia tension there, obviously between Hezbollah and, and Hamas and southern Lebanon and Gaza. Those are, those are tensions that are really, that are quite raw and sometimes they manifest. And um, one of my Sunni friends, Actually, a, a leader in the Sunni world has asked me for help to bridge to the Shia community because he he has caught the vision of what we're trying to do. He calls himself a Muslim peacemaker, even a follower of Jesus, and um, he doesn't have many Shia friends. And so my, my objective is to help kind of build that. Would you say a bit more um, about that and what it's like to, or what it might be like if this is something that you're about to do, um, to engage in peace building or to catalyze peace when you're um, kind of on the outside or outside looking in, you know, obviously um, you are 
a follower of Jesus, you're not, you're neither Sunni nor Shia. So what, um, yeah. How does, what are the dynamics there and things that you might be thinking about or sensitive towards? Well, I can, I can step into some of those places, especially in the Sunni Shia thing, um, and not be, um, rejected initially. They know me as a peacemaker. They know me as someone who loves Muslims and has respect among Muslims. And so I can be, um, I can step into either of those communities and I do quite a bit. So I'm, um, that's, that's one role we can play is, is people who are somewhere in the, the breach between those communities. Um, and, uh, you know, Jesus did that. So that's where we're, you know, how he brought some of his disciples into Samaria. You know, I read that those texts now with, I mean, the narrative, the travel narrative in Luke 9, beginning in 951, I think it is. That's that's when Jesus began his, his journey back to Jerusalem. And initially he took his disciples um, into Samaria. You know, usually they didn't do that. They would circumvent Samaria because they were the hated um, kind of half-brothers and the religious heretics of, of their time. And John and um, James and John, the the brothers of Thunder, they wanted they wanted to uh, call down thunder on Samaritans when they didn't offer hospitality to Jesus and his group, and Jesus rebuked them. So anyway, I could go on that that um, rabbit hole for a while. The the I think if you are in that space long enough, Muslims don't suspect that I'm there to try to convert them. Um, I can play a role as as a bridge builder and a peacemaker, um, but also it's just really really fun. Initially, I was um, evangelized quite a bit, but I keep coming back and I haven't converted to Islam, although. In many mosques, they consider me a Muslim um, because I yield to God. I'm committed to, to Jesus. So the, I, I create confusion in um, the mosque sometimes because I'm not pounding them with, with my good news. But I create confusion in the church because I'm not um, pigeonholing Muslims. That's a, sorry, that's kind of a caricature of what evangelism looks like sometimes, but I'm, I'm living with them, loving Muslims in my deeds. Um, and sometimes that's not enough for churches. So, um, Becca, I know you're on this, but I'm trying to, um, I, I feel it's really important for um, those of us in this journey um, to recenter um, really the practice of Jesus in peacemaking. And, and it's, it's too often a, an adjunct or something that specialists like you and I are given permission to do, but it's not considered as central. And I, I, I'm reading more and more and understanding just the New Testament that, um, so for instance, the word peace appears a hundred times, a hundred times in the New Testament. And we limit it to personal peace with God, um, very little to do with how we relate to our neighbors. So I'm trying to recenter this peacemaking um, as central to Christian discipleship. It's not a something that just you and I get to do. 
more on the the peace feasts, I'm curious to hear, um, I've never formally participated in a peace feast, but I've heard a lot about them and um, the effectiveness, if you can measure effectiveness or call it that necessarily. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm interested to hear more from you on that and particularly what you've observed, um, what, you know, some if you've noticed any attitude changes or anything, mm-hmm. you know, um, j- just what, what is the, the churches, your church, your local church, your local communities experience with, with that? Um, so the, some of the byproduct, which is very important and it, it kind of, um, there's ripple effects across, um, a church community, if they're involved in this, but more broadly, you know, the wherever the it touches, um, to normalize our Muslim neighbors. So when something happens, if you don't have a relationship, you don't know a Muslim, um, we we're su- we're susceptible to interpretations of what happened, who did that, who are the perpetrators, what is their intent. The people ask, you know, Sharia law, what's that going to do to our freedoms and our democracy? Those kinds of questions. But if you know a Muslim, it's you just kind of say, well, no, that's not what um, Muhammad thinks. That's not what Ahmed believes. He's not that way. He's he's um, he's an American citizen. So that's a big piece. of course, there's a variety of Muslims and ways in which they believe they are to live in, in the U.S., for instance, but you begin to help people not be susceptible to the stereotypes that feed Islamophobia. So it's, it's a little bit like the issue with um, Black Lives Matter or um, racism or any of those isms or phobias that, that we are susceptible to when you know somebody you, you can immediately just kind of correct that. And, and then it, it changes how you, how you behave as well. Um, and then as we invite people to do that and say, this is what we're supposed to do as followers of Christ, um, it, 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 it picks up some momentum and you begin to see them, um, yeah, more more people being creative on on how they build those relationships. Um, so we've done other things. So we've done listening events. So um, where we in a church will host a group, um, and we try to pick a particular group that has a story to tell, and we host them. We just do a potluck or some kind of food, and we have invite them to tell their story in a church community. We've done that with the Bosnians. We've done it actually with Uyghur communities. Um, I've done it with Palestinian issues because I'm deeply involved in Israel-Palestine. And um, sometimes there's a little more content. So they're telling a little more of their story and that those are very powerful and helpful. It, it, changes, it changes both communities. So Muslims are less terrified. They know they have allies. Um, and then we are, are less afraid. And it's hard to know, you know, just one person, little old me here in Olympia or Seattle or you in Poland, what do we, how, what can we do with the current situation? Um, so 
we we were there for two weeks we came back and then of course this last week there was um yeah there was quite a bit of conflict and and shelling um so in iraq there's there's huge influence um from iran and there's different models on um how they as as shia muslims position themselves with with the local government Iran is more of a what we call a theocratic model. So the clerics are shaping more kind of what the country of Iran does. Uh, but if you watch the news and understand a little bit more what's going on, um, that is falling out um, of favor, especially with the young generation. There's um, there's quite a bit of kickback, but it's still the model in, in the country of Iran and some of the leading clerics. So Iraq is their neighbor, and um, though they're smaller, um, they've suffered more in recent years because of what's been happening. Um, the infrastructure is really, really pretty um, in disrepair. But there is a strong pushback towards that model, and the model in in Iraq is there's there's a number of, of different leading voices and so they don't all agree but in general it would be fair to say that their model following Sistani especially is is to um to be more neutral and not dictate to government what they should do but they definitely have influence um and the the president of iraq right after the the u.s left was um more of a people would say more of a an outside voice he wasn't um probably giving enough legitimacy to the local Shia and Iraqi leaders. And so there's been tension there. I mean, they've had problems for some time. But interestingly, Muqtada al-Sadr, the guy I saw at Sistani's house, um, he he asked his followers, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday last week, to withdraw from the green zone where there was um, firing and and. I think over 30 people died across the country of Iraq. And so it settled down. He exerted influence. Um, he has quite a quite a strong following. And um, so it's created at least non-confrontation uh, right now. But there's there's still this, this sense that because um, they don't have a governing coalition yet in the um, in their form of government. And so they're they're still trying to figure out what they're gonna do. But at least people aren't dying from um, these different groups that are vying for power. So there's the Iranian militia, there's the government of Iraq, and then there would be what we call Shia militias. So there's three three streams of influence in, in that country, and um, they're trying to figure out how, how to, to go ahead. So just the practical question of what we can do. Um, I, I that's that's a hot, tough one to answer. Just keep praying that cool heads prevail. And there there is this sense that it also infiltrates into the Muslim community globally because it's a Shia Sunni thing, also not entirely. But um, and how do our Shia friends believe that um, the government of Iraq should should behave? You know that that's a that's um, up for grabs, up for interpretation. So 
just be present, insert yourself in those relationships, ask how your friends, especially if they're from a Shia um, community, how they feel about it. Just listen really well. Um, pray a lot. And <laughs> um, one last thing. Um, one of the things I wanted to say if I had the chance was to apologize, you know, ask forgiveness for our role within that country. Because I'm, I'm not detached. I'm a part of, um, for better or worse, I'm an American citizen. So I need to um, not go and just kind of be this this person who knows everything and from, from above kind of um, share some opinion, but to humble ourselves. Um, I think there's a viable role for Christians, especially if you're an American citizen, to to acknowledge our error, the way in which we behaved the the premise of the um, shock and awe was a lie we said there were weapons of mass destruction and there never were saddam wasn't um wasn't loved across the country he was loved by some um there's winners and losers but just to be humble in that also as a, an american citizen um thank you for for asking these questions and giving me a chance to share some of the stuff um the 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 awareness that you know one of the the things that um, will stay with me for a while is to understand the um, that some of our Muslim friends they know God they do they just have a journey with God that I don't fully understand fully get I theologically have problems with um, but it's not like we're starting from ground zero I think would be the yeah, one of the assumptions I, I now strongly believe we're not starting from ground zero about spiritual things and how we how we walk with God. Jesus is um, has a lot to say about that, but um, too often we we approach it um, without much humility, and, and you know they need to hear and know Jesus, and which is what I believe. But um, yeah, we're not starting from ground zero. Um, such a great conversation with Andy and I think I'm looking forward to a part two with him where we can kind of even dive deeper into some of the things that he mentioned like um, advocacy for our Muslim neighbors and you know why is that important and what does that look like um, and some of the other other things that he's has brought up I think yeah we'll definitely have to do a part two and kind of delve into that a little bit more yeah that would be great I I would love to hear um more of his perspective and experience on that and so many things that he shared were inspiring to me and um just fascinating one thing I think that Andy shared that really has resonated with me is just the and I don't know if I forget if the exact language that he used, but basically just the power of being present um, mm. and the the power of showing up in a space um, and just thinking about how what a privilege it was really, it sounds like, for him to visit Sistani's home and to be in that 
space um, as, yeah, I, I don't know if, if I would say especially as, but it, you know, as a, as a follower of Jesus, but to be, to kind of be sharing space with somebody um, and to recognize that this is a spiritual leader with so much wisdom um, and just the power of being in the same room. Um, I don't know. I've, I've just been reflecting on that and thinking about how that might apply to um, us peace builders. You know, what is it, what does it mean to, to show up um, mm-hmm. in our, in our own spaces in places where, you know, we might not completely align with other people in terms of, um, you know, religious ideology or um, life experiences we're representing different communities. Um, but just the, the, yeah, the, the beauty of being in one space and sharing a space and, um, yeah. So I think a practical illustration of that would, or, or just a, a practice of that, I guess, would be the peace feats that Andy was, was talking about. Um, and how, how it sounds like rewarding that has been for him to facilitate and, um, the, yeah, the, the kind of paradigm shifting moments that he maybe has been part of or her, has witnessed. Um, so yeah, very, very inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As you were saying that I was thinking peace, peace. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's such a great, such a great point. And, um, yeah, really grateful for, for him and his life and, all the practical um, kind of takeaways that we have gotten to glean from him. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org.